Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Christian Gruber. She is a professor of Islamic art in the History of Art Department at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her primary field of research is Islamic book arts, paintings of the Prophet Muhammad, and Islamic ascension texts and images. Her latest book is titled Visual Culture in the Modern Middle East, Rhetoric of the Image by Christian Gruber and Sunni Haubala. And I am joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, David Osler. Uh, I grew up in South America. I was born in Boston, grew up in South America went to Harvard with the rest of these guys and ladies, and uh, then to the Harvard Business School and spent my career in public broadcasting at uh, WNET in New York City and WHYY in Philadelphia, public radio and public television. Okay, Ronnie. Uh, like David, Ron Blau, Newton, Massachusetts, class of 63. Like David, I spent at least the beginning of my career in public television. Oh, good. Forms of TV and uh, video and uh, still planning on shooting some video at the Climate March in New York this weekend. You can do a lot with an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, now still doing some script writing uh, and also working on climate issues. Ann Huberman, I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire, but right now I'm in Greenfield at my summer place at the lake. I just came out of the lake. When I learned the switch in time, I went right into the water. <laughs> so uh had, had a good swim. So I'm a retired academic librarian, um, class of 63, and I'm now a climate activist. So that's okay. it. David, David Allen. Here in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, I've had a life, uh, a pastiche of a life, I like to say, about a decade in business, starting ventures, uh, another decade to my shock in university, uh, and subsequently uh, activism uh, focused at least in these recent years on democracy. Looking forward to today's session. Okay, uh, uh, Mr. Allen, how are you? I'm in Los Angeles, uh, sort of on the near west side, that is west, but not west of the 405. Uh, I, have, uh, I, I tried to find my University of Colorado baseball cap. Uh, I did law school after uh, college with these guys in the class of 63 at Harvard. I uh, did uh, law school at Boulder, uh, and uh, there's great interest right now in the University of Colorado because of its uh, black football coach and a tremendous number of extraordinarily talented and mostly black uh, new football players. But I couldn't find the hat. Uh, <laughs> in any event, uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm still practicing uh, mostly in federal courts. I've spent about a uh, third to 40% of my professional lifetime in the Western Pacific uh, doing uh, weird stuff such as nuclear testing cases against the U.S. government, military base uh, dislocation and impact stuff. And I continue to consult on that uh, in the Marianas and Guam. Bill Collins, Harvard 63, grew up in the Boston area, Navy 20 years, came to Aiken, South Carolina, where I am now to work on nuclear waste cleanup at the Savannah River site, and uh, retired from doing that now. The cleanup is still going on and progressing, okay. and I have my friend Rocky here. All right, great. John. Oh, hi. Um, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And I've been an editor and writer for most of my career. And my wife, Eliza, who was also in 63, is in the other room. Okay, great. John, you forgot to say you were disguised as, as um, Fidel Castro. 
Oh. <laughs> who he is? Okay. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Connie. Uh, yes, I was in class of 63 at Radcliffe. My voice seems to be failing me. At Radcliffe, which is now part of Harvard, I guess, went to Harvard Law School. First, I started out in legal services for the poor, wound up at a big corporation. I'm now happily retired. Um, I'm in the city right now, New York City. I have been at my house upstate all summer, and I'm an avid gardener. This part <laughs> of my life. Okay, great. Bill, uh, Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, class of 63 also, Harvard Business School, uh, Peace Corps in India, small <laughs> business development. Uh, then back to Boston and a career with uh, trust wills in the States. And uh, I've fortunately gotten rid of all of them, except my own. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. And Groves. Hi, um, I'm from originally from New York and Providence. And uh, when I was at uh, Harvard Radcliffe, whatever we call it these days, um, I majored in Russian history and lit and then did an about face and became a psychotherapist, go figure. Um, but uh, I'm now mostly retired and I just uh, relocated from uh, Washington DC to California. I basically am dividing my time between those two wonderful places. So I feel very fortunate. And I majored in Slavic languages and literature. Mm. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm oh. sure we knew each other, but <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you speak better than I do. No, I don't. Me? Yeah, you. Hi. Oh, okay. Hi. Well, um, Eliza Woodford, also in Ann Arbor, also class of 63, retired from the University of Michigan Institute for the Humanities. And if I had just waited a few years to retire, I could have been there the year that Christie was there. <laughs> okay, okay. Doug. And the Julia Ward down in that little box is my sister in, in uh Oxford, Ohio. Oh, it's oh, okay. Great. Doug. Um hi, Doug Shapiro. Uh I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a retired physician and behavioral ecologist. Um my, my my wife is a gardener in the family, and she brings uh, a great deal of beauty, not only into the backyard, but into my life, which is one of the reasons that I fell in love with her in the first place. Here, here. <laughs> okay, here, here. Good. Alden. Uh, born in Mass General, grew up in Connecticut, lived in uh, Flint, Michigan for three and a half years in Chicago uh, for 15 years, now just south of San Francisco. My wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm, and damn it, I'll put my tomatoes up against anybody's. Well, welcome, Christy. How are you? So good to see you. Thank you for coming on. And sorry about all of the uh, confusion, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for the quick minute. And I, I've loved this introduction. It seems like a lot of us are Avid gardeners. I see that John is actually showing his garden. Showing his garden. <laughs> there, yes. <laughs> John, there are my tomatoes. Beyond John's garden is our common fence. So not only do right. I live in Ann Arbor, I'm John's neighbor. And we met over um, his tomatoes and our tomatoes a few years ago. There <laughs> <laughs> really are. Back there. Yep, that's oh, nice. very nice, John. Mm -hmm. Good, good. So tell us about your book, the story, and your life. It's all yours. Thanks so much. So um, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's a real joy to be with you guys. Um, I was born in Switzerland, but I grew up all over the world. Uh, lived in Australia and Yugoslavia. Uh, stint in Namibia when it became independent from South Africa. Eventually landed uh, in the United States. Went to college at Princeton. I suppose that would be a rival to you guys. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, went on and did my PhD at Penn. Uh, when I was 16, I was lucky enough to get um, a fellowship as a high school junior to go study in the Middle East. And I landed in Tunisia with uh, nine other 16 year olds. And that's when I started learning Arabic and uh, living uh, in, the, in the Muslim world. 
And uh, it was uh, really fascinating to me um, because I had been more familiar with other places in the world. And so when I got to Princeton, I decided to continue Arabic. Um, by the time I was a sophomore, they had hired their first Islamic art historian. Um, and I studied, started studying Islamic art history and I just stayed with it. Um, and over the years, I went over to Iran, lived there for a while, and I've been living on and off in Turkey for the last two decades. Um, so that's been kind of my path. And uh, I'm lucky really here to be at the University of Michigan because Islamic art has been taught here since the 1930s. It's the oldest uh, line for uh, Islamic art in the United States. So we were way ahead of the, the ball game a long time ago when just Greek and Roman and, and Renaissance painting were, were being taught. So that's kind of my trajectory over here. And of course, I'm thrilled to be uh, John's uh, neighbor too, because he's been unbeknownst to him, looking like the coolest kid on the block right now, been a huge inspiration. <laughs> um, as some of you know, uh, one of my specialties in Islamic art is uh, devotional paintings of the prophet Muhammad. Uh, so these are, really beautiful paintings uh, that are dedicated to the Prophet Muhammad um, and that celebrate his career um, as a, an enlightened messenger. Um, and I wrote uh, a very a big chunky book on that subject called The Praiseworthy One, uh, The Prophet Muhammad in Islamic Texts and Images. And so there's a really beautiful, very large and rich corpus of uh, paintings mostly in manuscripts, so handwritten books from about the 13th century until today uh, that are dedicated to his life and deeds and uh, put those on display. So some of the images show him receiving the revelations of the Quran uh, through the angel Gabriel, others show him embarked on his celestial ascension to the heavens, and others show him, you know, uh, in, in battle, show his birth, show his death. Um, one of those paintings is in a very famous, very rare manuscript uh, in the Edinburgh University Library. Um, and it was made in 1307 to 1314. So it's about 700 years old and it's considered an absolute masterpiece uh, of Persian Islamic uh, manuscripts. And- I'm uh, I thought there were not supposed to be any images in this art. A lot of people believe that, and that's kind of what you hear again and again, uh, especially when individuals try to define Islam against Christianity. So you hear those kinds of simplistic categories that that's Islam true. has images and Christianity does. But of course, the situation on the ground, as with you know cultural complexes in general, are much more interesting and and uh, varied uh, than that. And so at in Islamic spheres, in Iran especially, and in Turkish lands, there's actually a very long and rich tradition of image making and image making dedicated to the prophet. How did we happen to think that was not the case? When, when did people start saying that you couldn't show the prophet or who said oh, yeah. it? Yeah. yeah so, no, that's a great question too, because by far and large, uh, Islamic art is devoid of figural <laughs> image inside of mosques which is very unlike Christian churches where you'll see stained glass windows and frescoes. So that holds within sacred architecture. But in the private realm of uh, the book, you'll have a lot of images and in palaces also, you'll have a lot of images. So there's always been like many traditions an anxiety over images, just like in the Byzantine iconoclastic controversy, right? When icons were destroyed or the Lutheran Right, the Protestant Reformation, uh, Christian statues of Christ were drowned and quartered and so on. And so images and statues were also a problem in Christianity. And in Islam, there's also that anxiety. So we can't say it's one or the other. Um, but over the course of the centuries, it came to be that at least in Orientalist scholarship, uh, that the most um, differential position, the position that makes Islam much more different than Christianity, has been centered more than any other uh, position. So it's kind of a monolithic, simplistic approach to defining Islam. And it grew with Orientalist scholarship that Islam became represented by its most conservative 
factions when there's a lot of ambiguity and differences and diversities uh, within Islam. Uh, and so, and it's gotten a, to be a very difficult divide, especially since the, the famous um, or actually infamous cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad uh, first published in the Ulan's Postin in 2005. And you guys will also remember the Charlie Hebdo assassination in 2015. And so more and more individuals are conflating disrespectful cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in Europe and America. They're conflating those with pre-modern Islamic paintings uh, that are in celebration of the Prophet Muhammad saying that all of this is prohibited. So what we have to do is disambiguate and separate those things and not lump them together. Won't be, won't be easy. I, I have a follow-up question uh, along that subject of decision-making. I, I, I don't know that much about <clears throat> the world out there, but I've traveled through it a bit. And it seems to me that the decision-making in the Muslim arena, if you will, is almost as confusing as our electoral system here in the United States. And it's it's regionally based and it's very um, uh, very locally based as far as a particular mullah making a decision. Um, could you That's sort of comment on that a bit? That's exactly right. And scholars, in fact, talk about that quite a bit. Scholar, scholars of Islam, you have no Vatican, essentially. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're looking for papal bulls, for example, uh, the closest you get to that um, is at least now in the Sunni world, you've got Al Azhar, which is considered to be the today the the center of Sunni decision making, even though it was founded as a center for the propagation of Shiism. In fact, uh, earlier mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there are, yeah, there are different decisions that are made by different muftis. So individuals who can issue fatwas, which are opinions. Uh, and you can have Sunni fatwas, you can have Shi fatwas, you can have progressive fatwas, you can have conservative fatwas. Fatwas are simply opinions and they're not universal and they're, and they're not universally applicable. And so you might have, for example, in the case of uh, Charlie Hebdo, you uh, had one fatwa, fatwa that was issued by Shi clerics saying images are perfectly fine as long as they're respectful. And then you'll have another fatwa coming out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's a Salafi, a very conservative Sunni position saying all images are banned. Um, and so it's an intra-faith rather than interfaith uh, discord. And there's an immense amount of variety and contestation within Islam. Um, and it's not to the scholar to impose one particular theological viewpoint, but to put them all out there for discussion and learning. Could the university where this, uh, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, Ham Hamlin. Hamlin. Hamlin University. Could, could uh, rather than making a decision within house, as it were, could they have gone to uh, a Muslim cleric and asked for uh, opinion? Oh, they could have done that. Of course, you know, a fatwa or a theological opinion could be interesting, but it doesn't necessarily hold in a secular American university where we hmm. do have a separation of church and state and here separation of mosque and state. And they, the question would be then is, why would you search for an opinion and to whom would you turn? Because within Minneapolis, uh, there are a number of Muslims who have expressed dismay that a very conservative position has been promoted, effectively, mm. you know, banning such images from the classroom, when another community sees it as their cultural heritage, and they want it taught, just like any other cultural heritage should be taught in the classroom, whether it's Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or what have you. Can you give a little background? I'm not familiar with the situation. Of the Hamlin situation. Yeah. yeah, so this is uh, something that happened over the course of the last uh, year or so. Um, an adjunct professor who's hired just, you know, on a course by course basis uh, was teaching a survey of art history. Um, and uh, many art historians, especially those who special, specialize in European art, have been told when you teach the survey, 
make sure you diversify it, make sure you teach Islamic art, make sure you teach African art, indigenous art, etc. And so she included Islamic art uh, to diversify and have better and be more inclusive. And in her uh, lecture on uh, figural imagery, which is a staple of art history classes, um, you teach images of the Buddha, of Christ, and she included Muhammad to talk about the power and the contestations over figural imagery. Uh, there was one student in the class um, who was given three opportunities to disengage from the images of the Prophet Muhammad if she chose to. Uh, there was a note in the syllabus uh, to the effect that the religious individuals were represented and they'd all be spoken about. Um, but instead she decided to engage and then she filed a complaint against the instructor. Uh, as far as I know, went straight up the ladder to uh, the president of the university. And the next thing we know, uh, the instructor is called Islamophobic uh, and disrespectful. And keep in mind, Islamophobia is hate speech. That's what it is. And, uh, and then she was not rehired for the following semester when she was being lined up to teach more courses. And it unraveled from there and it became a national story and the uh, New York Times covered it. Uh, many people spoke about this situation um, in terms of academic freedom that, uh, you know, with academic freedom, you have the right to talk about anything and you have the right to offend. Um, but I think what we see here is much more complicated than academic freedom. It's really about properly representing Islam through its variety and not cherry picking evidence that matches our epistemological expectation of what Islam is, especially if it's an it's a simplistic and potentially orientalistic one. Thank George, you. George, you had a question? Uh, yeah. Uh, this engages a, a number of things that concern me very greatly. Uh, First of all, the uh, willingness of a university administration to give ground to and ultimately give voice and effect to uh, an outside influence of questionable legitimacy. Uh, one of the defining events of my life was that my dad, who was a uh, liberal democratic uh, activist in Omaha, where I grew up, uh, lost his position on the faculty of what was then the uh, Municipal University of Omaha and is now the University of Nebraska at Omaha, uh, as well as his jobs as a radio and television news broadcaster. Uh, because of uh, accusations by McCarthyites that was a so-called fellow traveler. Uh, all that happened when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, so I was quite aware of it. Uh, and uh, I was also aware of an, uh, a major factor in my decision to uh, go to Harvard rather than Princeton or Penn, where I was also accepted. Uh, was that uh, Nathan Pusey, who uh, by sure coincidence happened to be from Council Bluffs, Iowa, right across the Missouri River, uh, and a classic scholar was the newly minted president of Harvard and stood up to the McCarthyites with the support of James Conant, who was a major national figure and the immediate past president of Harvard. Uh, so Harvard has a, a strong tradition of uh, operating by its own lights for the most part, and I hope it will continue to do so, notwithstanding the most recent Supreme Court decision about which this group has had a very robust dialogue. Uh, but I'd like you to comment, if you would, uh, on uh, the posture of Hamlin in uh, what seems to me to be a kind of a knee-jerk knuckling under rather than uh, standing up to this and saying, we, Hamlin, are the arbiters of what is taught or not taught uh, within the walls of our institution 
and we are going to defend uh, academic freedom and free discourse of competing ideas, regardless of who it offends. Uh, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that and on your take on Hamlin and uh, what seems to me is uh, recognizing that there is no one true faith in Islam uh, uh, as there was in the Catholic Church in which I was reared, but that's the religion I'm no longer practicing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in any event, I wonder if you could elaborate on that and how you view uh, Hamlin's uh, response to this uh, in light of what seems to me to have been a distinct shirking of anything remotely resembling academic responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, Christy. Yeah, sure. No, that's a wonderful question, and it's filled with uh, complexities and nuances. Um, Hamlin's posture has been overtly and declaratively offensive, and in fact, the president uh, just a couple days ago uh, organized a forum on academic freedom in which she defined their posture as offensive, uh, uh, meaning to to go on the attack. And and that's exactly what they've done since the beginning, uh, which is truly unfortunate because when a brouhaha happens, you, you kind of have to take a step back and do some analysis and perhaps do some conversation and mediation, but that has not truly occurred um, with Hamlin. Um, I think the knee-jerk reaction in this case was that there were probably some Islamophobic instances and events on and off campus I would be surprised if that were the case. And potentially the university had been criticized for not responding to those earlier. And so when this came on the heels of other potential Islamophobic incidents and complaints, it was really quite easy uh, for top administrators at the university to simply let go of an adjunct professor because those individuals are at will. You can just get rid of your course by course instructor and show to your students that you've actually done something. So I think they felt the need to show action, to cultivate a growing demographic. Um, and in fact, they're very keen to note that 10% of the Hamlin uh, student population is now Muslim. And uh, they've said quite forthrightly themselves and through some uh, outside actors, that if they don't take that stance, that they will lose that demographic, um, which is a very curious um, kind of liberal, you know, late stage capitalist approach uh, to that stance, I would say. And to me, it's also very bizarre because I'm teaching Islamic art right now, the survey, and my survey is 90% uh, Muslim. And I would venture to say that my students would be quite offended if somebody were to say, you're allowed to learn about this in Islamic art, but not that. Um, and so imagine this, a situation where the table was flipped. I have only maybe one Christian student in my Islamic art class. And one of the most sacred spaces in Islam is the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. The inscriptions in the Dome of the Rock say, do not say they are three, it's anti-Trinity. What if that student then complained uh, to the president of the University of Michigan and saying that I was Christophobic for including the Dome of the Rock and it should be removed from the curriculum. And that Christian student is in fact in the hyper minority of my class. And so once we start doing academic freedom, but in nuance with exceptions, we are essentially engaging in inequity and that's a form of discrimination. So we have to be extremely careful about where we draw the line. And Hamlin has drawn a line um, at academic freedom, but not in this case. In other words, it has a, an exceptional clause for the most conservative positions within Islam. Well, let, let, let me, if I may, and I, I don't want to believe this and I don't want to, do as is my want, dominate a conversation in an unwelcome way. Fred Easter, uh, who died just about a year ago, uh, was uh, one of my roommates in college at Harvard and uh, uh, 
a wonderful guy who uh, lived in the Twin Cities for decades uh, and uh, was himself very much a champion of the uh, Muslim community in the Twin Cities, uh, which I recognize is large and growing. And uh, I am sure that uh, had Fred lived, he would have gotten into this and been very much on the side of saying, hey, hold it, wait a minute. Uh, what's at stake here is uh, protection of expression and protection of the right of uh, a faculty member in a university, regardless of whether that faculty member is junior or senior, tenured or not tenured, uh, to uh, control the, the course of, of discourse within uh, materials being taught. Uh, and uh, I just have to think that, uh, well, I, I would like you to on where the dialogue is right now in terms of, uh, let's say, the Minneapolis newspaper uh, and the, the community at large in the Twin Cities and within Minnesota on where this is going and how it's likely to turn out. Well, I'm I'm really hoping that they're actually going to start having much more constructive dialogue, uh, because so far it's it's been a series of uh, chest thumping declarations and uh, homiletics that try to uh, <clears throat> to try to curb uh, the teaching of of Islamic art, and that's a concern for me as a specialist in the field. And you mentioned, right, that the faculty has the right to teach what they want to teach. Faculty have rights, but they have responsibilities and students have rights. And I'd like to focus here on student rights. My students have the right to learn about Islam without me deciding what gets censured. If I were to take out a Persian painting from the 1300s, that's a devotional piece and considered one of the most important paintings for an Iranian Muslim, how offensive would that be to my Iranian Muslim students? I'm effectively taking an Arabo-centric or Sunni-centric approach to the tradition without giving my students the right to access historically accurate information. This is not, this is not about just faculty rights. You know, I'm really interested as our professors, as is the professor who taught this class, in maintaining student rights and equity um, by promoting historically sound and accurate data devoid of ideological wrangling and twisting and turning. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug. Uh, yeah, I'd like to maybe uh, redirect uh, the discussion a little bit. Uh, I doubt that anyone else uh, on this call are aware of it, but there was a, a Turkish uh, uh, woman who was uh, in our class at Harvard um, at the time she was at Radcliffe. Her name was Marussia Casido. Uh, I believe that she was probably not uh, Islamic by religion. Her mother taught at some uh, Christian college in Ankara or someplace. Anyway, um, I found Marusha to be very interesting. Uh, she was completely different from kind of anyone that I'd been exposed to before, kind of very uh, down to earth kind of person. Uh, I remember taking her to a Harvard football game and trying to explain it to her and she thought it was horribly violent and she couldn't understand why anyone would like to, to watch such a game. Um, anyway, after we graduated, we lost contact, and I had nothing, knew nothing about her. Uh, and somehow, 35 years later, when I was doing my PhD at Cambridge University in England, I discovered she was in London, and we got together for a day. Uh, and she was a very unhappy person. I just had the feeling that she never managed to figure out how to survive in this kind of Western culture of ours. Uh, and I wondered if you would mind commenting about uh, difficulties that um, 
uh, Islamic women, or at least uh, since she was not uh, a Muslim, uh, you know, a Christian woman who was raised in an Islamic country, and what difficulties did they have? How did they deal with uh, Western society? <laughs> oh, that's a deep and complex question, you know, and uh, I don't like <laughs> the term Western, because if Western is also Europe, then that's also the Muslim world. Uh, you know, Islam was in Spain for 700 years or so. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, every individual and every woman uh, or man or what have you will have their own life experiences and trajectories. Uh, I can't surmise to know what uh, the experience of the young woman in the class might have been in Minnesota. But I know that diasporic and immigration communities in America do find it challenging to settle that there is Islamophobia. There's very real and violent homophobia out there. You're talking about uh, violently, physically attacking human beings. For women, having their hijab pulled off. That happened to one of my students a few years ago here in uh, Michigan of mosques being burned to the ground. Uh, these are all the definition of uh, Islamophobia. Um, and so for that particular demographic in uh, the Twin Cities, uh, most, I would say a great part of that community is also of Sub-Saharan African origin, Somalia, Sudan, etc. And so you add to that the volatile uh, racial aspect of Minneapolis, and Minnesota, don't forget, this is where George Floyd was killed as well. So you have both race and religion that enter the fray. And in America, that makes for, for quite an explosive mix. And in this particular case, there's been an aligning of race with religion, of blackness with Islam, when Islam is, is not ethnically bound and it has many other ethnic communities and viewpoints. And so it's important to see that that has its own particular dynamics um, and its own particular uh, racial patina to it as well. Um, and the women in uh, at Hamlin, no doubt, have faced both racist, misogynistic, and Islamophobic comments. And that unfortunately entered into the classroom and became, became part of how they interpreted um, a medieval Persian painting of the prophet. And instead of mediating, having a conversation, hiring a chaplain, hiring a specialist of Islam, which they do not have, not shutting down the art history department, they shut down the art history department. They would, they should have gone out to specialists to try to mediate, to educate, but instead it, it became a real a defensive move by going on the offense. And it's, it hasn't worked out well for them, even though they're still continuing on that path right now. Mm -hmm. Ronnie. Um, I can't help but think of the Netflix series, The Chair from a couple of years ago, which uh, starred Sandra Oh and Jay Duplass. And it was about a professor, the, the, the triggering incident about a professor who is joking about something in class and inadvertently gives a, what looks like a Nazi salute. And this ramifies crazily. Um, and it sounds like there's so many parallels between the chair um, and this incident. And I couldn't help but noting it. And I feel like though it was a comedy series, I felt like, because I'm not in academia, um, it was a glimpse at how everybody's having to walk on tiptoes these days in the university. And I was wondering if you could comment on that and maybe you've even seen the series. Oh, yes. You know, I watched the entire, I think it was six episodes total the night it went live on Netflix because that happened within the, I think, the second year of my chairship, <laughs> so, which overlapped with the pandemic, the George Floyd uh, murder, um, our graduate students striking. So, you know, I had to watch that and I saw a lot of myself, uh, you know, as a, as a chair in Sandra Oh. So uh, I watched, you know, that episode of things uh, uh, sort of snowballing out of control with the so-called Nazi salute, um, where you have a teacher who's, who's actually in a course trying to either educate or even engage something satirical and then it becomes interpreted as something else. And then you have a mass movement on campus and then effectively the professor is fired. 
And I think that says a lot about the, the virality of some of these push point uh, issues, whether you know it's racism or Nazism, and now Islam also, these are all push button issues. Uh, the, the more you push it, it spirals out of control. And uh, negative emotion spirals much more out of control, is much more contagious than positive emotion. Anybody who's looked at you know the, the emotion of bureaucratic entities knows that in negativity is incredibly um, contagious. So it's it's up to an administration to uh, nurture and implement for themselves a kind of mood neutral stance and to and to try to see a through way. Um, and unfortunately, at Hamlin, um, they took uh, you know the, another approach, which was pouring fire on fire, uh, and it looks a lot like what happened in the chair for sure. So you recommend the series? <laughs> Very much. And I'm sad there are only a few series. I would have liked it to continue. Yeah, I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a practicing Roman Catholic. And I've been involved for years in ecumenical and more recently interfaith work. And just so you all know, ecumenism means the house of Christianity, trying to build unity among Christians, which is a challenge. But, you know, we work at it. Interfaith is aimed at, at trying to build mutual understanding and friendship and cooperation with people of other religions. And in that connection, I've made some study of Islam. I've been to Turkey, and I have some Islamic friends that I work with in the Aiken Augusta area. And it's, it's interesting because there are great differences, as you pointed out. Um, and in and, and dealing with interfaith work, I, I, I sometimes encounter a certain how shall I say it, harshness on some things. <laughs> and I, I try to maintain my equanimity. I don't always. Uh, but uh, for example, I had a, there was an interfaith group here that was going to have interfaith dinners and they were going to allow alcohol to be served if people wanted to add the alcohol. And an Islamic member, a good friend of mine said, oh, I can't go to that because people are drinking alcohol and well, if you don't drink alcohol, is that okay? Well, no, that's not good enough kind of thing. And that's sort of like the art business, I think. Uh, I think there are great, as you said, great differences among different parts of Islam, enormous differences. And you said there's no Pope, there's no Vatican, there's no central authority. Yeah, you know, and I have colleagues who are dear friends also, uh, who are specialists of Islam and who are Muslim and who are very offended by what Hamlin did. And they spoke up, they spoke up very powerfully. Amna Khalid, Omid Safi, even you know, certain organizations that are Muslim uh, said that this is, this is beyond the pale. So what I found interesting in this situation is that we talk about interfaith dialogue, but with this situation, what we need is intrafaith dialogue. Uh, Muslims to be speaking to each other and being accepting of each other's differences. Um, uh, because we're, we're not in the business as pedagogues of enforcing uh, uh, you know, a single point of view. If I had, um, let's say, a, 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 a Protestant student from the 1600s sitting in my class, um, and he got offended when I showed an icon of Christ, and he said, you shouldn't teach this, then I certainly hope that the University of Michigan wouldn't try to ban the teaching of paintings of Jesus Christ based on a whitewashed Lutheran view of the world, because that would be the analogy. And I could go on and on. There are Buddhists who are against figural imagery, who don't no. believe Buddha should be figurally represented. And the same can, can be repeated on and on. Uh, thanks so much for your comments. I um, wondered if you would talk for a bit about um, the influence of Islam on the Black Power movement in the 60s and 70s and, and where that is today? Great question. So um, as I think uh, maybe Kent did, he sent along my uh, essay on uh, the visual culture of the nation of Islam. Yeah. And um, what I found is really shifting topics, mm -hmm. but still staying you know, in certain uh, registers that involve race and Islam, if we go back to the 60s and, and, and 70s, in some registers, Islam was a lexicon and reservoir for self-empowerment. 
that was adopted by certain groups, um, most famously, of course, by Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, to uh, lift uh, members of the Black community out of a situation of despair and indignity that had been uh, superposed upon them by a complex that was largely white and Christian. So it was an uh, anti-Christian contraposition that offered another reservoir for self-empowerment and unity. Um, and it also allowed at least the, the Nation of Islam in the Black Power era to also say that we need to liberate ourselves um, from the shackles uh, of the, the inheritance of slavery. We have to release ourselves from prisons. Um, so the Nation of Islam was really at the vanguard of calling for decarceration and exposing abuses in the prison system. And it also established a national Muslim chaplaincy program. Um, and so quite a few uh, converts came out of the prison system. Um, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, they also came through the, the prison system. That's very well known. Um, and on top of intersecting with separatist world liberation movements at that moment in the civil rights era, there was the construction of what it means to be black. Um, and if you look carefully sort of at the Nation of Islam, the, the term uh, Negro, which is uh, I find really interesting for the name of your group, is dropped in favor of the black man um, you know, within Muhammad Speaks, um, the, the newspaper of the Nation of Islam. And the black man, at least in NOI rhetoric, is from the Asia-Africa comp cultural complex. And Islam is seen as the indigenous religion of that area. And so it promises a return to that civilizational homeland and that spiritual home. So it, it gives a, it's a, a method of empowering, of giving self-discipline, uh, kind of lifting yourself by the bootstraps and a spiritual education that's seen as reuniting uh, the African diaspora in the so-called wilderness of America, the belly of the beast, back to the, the high level civilization home from which it was extracted uh, forcefully. And what's happening with that currently? Is, is Islam still a major force in uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, or other, other racial um, di dialogues? Um, I see it still uh, in Black Lives Matter. I think there's a much bigger component that is, in fact, uh, coming from Christian quarters. Uh, I've actually seen quite a few uh, activists who are not just activists, but also preachers. Um, and that reminds me quite a bit of, of uh, MLK, too. And uh, Elijah Muhammad, of course, posited himself against MLK. Both were vying, um, as John told me, when we were chatting as uh, coaches of rival teams trying to you know get followers like this and so um islam still plays um a, a role in black communities and they're part of the black lives movement especially in in, Minna, in minnesota and islam is still growing quite a bit in the prison system in the united states and that's actually how i got interested in the topic uh, back when i was at Princeton undergrad, I've always been interested in, in teaching. And so I taught uh, for the GED in the Mercer County Prison in New Jersey. And that's when I actually was in the same room as a, as a Muslim chaplain who was there helping inmates to embrace Islam. So my interest goes all the way back uh, about 25 years and back to a prison system as well. What is your uh, do for self project? Tell us about that. Sure, yeah, so what you guys saw online is just a, a small pilot piece right now. It's quite short, uh, but over the last few years, I've gathered hundreds and hundreds of visuals that are that take up Islam in some fashion or another. So I've left aside the visuals that are really great and powerful on their own terms, like the anti-Vietnam uh, cartoons um, and uh, their cartoons against the birth control pill, which I find interesting, but they're not directly relevant to my project as an Islamic art historian. And so what I am doing now with some research assistance here is to synthesize all of those images and we're going to build a website. We're going to have certain themes that you can explore. It's like uh, against you know Islam against Christianity or do for self or Islamic fashion uh, because a number of the visuals are anti-hippie 
um, in fact. So there's an Afro-Muslim uh, conservative guard that, garb that's uh, promoted as anti-soul and anti-hippie in Muhammad Speaks, which I find interesting, Islamic food systems. Uh, Elijah Muhammad wrote a book on how to eat to live. And so there's a notion of halal, so uh, Islamic dietary law. So you can, you'll be able to explore those themes. And we also want a, a story map. So you can scroll through a chronology, the years, and you can click on the years. And then the cartoons and images will pop up. And then you can click on those and you can learn more about say, why a photograph of Muhammad Ali says, you know, and God Allah is the greatest above it as a superscript. So, you know, the sort of a overlaying of, of an Islamic meaning on uh, the heavyweight uh, champion, and he became known as the Muslim heavyweight champion. You so give he a description of your project <clears throat> kind of in general. I, I guess I'm just not familiar with your goal, your concept, what you're doing with it. I mean, you just gave some sketch, but what's the overview? What what inspired you to do it? What do you want to achieve? I want to be able to diversify the study of Islam and Islamic art to make room and incorporate contemporary expressions that are not in the Middle East, but are in America, um, that are intersecting with uh, issues that have to do with race and civil rights. And so my angle to these images that come out of the nation of Islam is to say, look, this is also a language that's not just about American racial and political issues, but it's also have to do with the history and the trajectory of Islamic creative tradition that we have to study if we're going to have the most capacious and, and inclusive approach to what constitutes Islamic creative expression, then we have to also make room for the nation of Islam. Um, just like we have to make room for images of the Prophet Muhammad, regardless of how we feel about the nation of Islam. It's a phenomenon that is historical, that has its creative expression, and it's worthwhile to study it academically. Oh, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's turning attention on, on um, a period in the 60s and 70s and, and up to the present that has either been poorly studied or distorted or ignored so it's <laughs> it's uh, bringing to the fore uh, ideas and actions and movements and connections of people that are worthy of being studied so it, it enriches our sense of uh, american history and, and world history and history of religions and social movements so it's all to the good Thank you so much. This was such a wonderful, lively conversation. I love <laughs> and And good luck with all your projects. It sounds really great. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me. And, and I tip my hat to John, my neighbor, and Eliza and the whole family. Okay. okay thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. That was uh, Christian Gruber. Her latest book is titled Visual Culture in the Modern Middle East Rhetoric of the Image. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>